Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mask and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're discussing the film The Handmaiden, the fanfic Captain America at 100, and A Choir of Lies by our very own Alexandra Rowland. Hello and welcome to episode 56, the title of the episode. I'm Alex and I'm the Alex one. I'm Freya and I'm the Freya one. I'm Macy and I'm the Macy one. We are three exceedingly self-referential red-headed fantasy authors. And today we're talking about meta-narratives and self-referential things and conversations with the canon and all sorts of interesting things. But before we get into all of that... What are we reading, fellow serpents? I have been going through a stage in my reading which I've decided to dub the sand and stabbing corner <laughs> because I found myself reading two books which had both been on my to-read list for a little while but were thematically quite similar. So the first one is Tasha Suri's Empire of Sand, mm. which yeah, I've been reading, meaning to read for a long time and the sequel, Realm of Ash, came out recently which prompted me to go back and actually pull the first one off my shelf. It's really lovely. It has an arranged marriage trope at the center of it, which I feel more people should have told me about or stuck in a big sticker mm. on the front of yeah. the book because I would have picked it up a lot sooner. Uh, but also Tasha's world building is really interesting. I really like the way she's designed the magic system. It's very creepy and evocative. And it's just a really nicely structured book. I am also currently in the middle of The Impossible Contract by K.A. Daw, which is the second in her Assassins in the Desert series. And I have not yet hit the promised zombie camels, but I have told there are zombie camels coming. There are, and they're not that far out. I'm they're not that far through the book. I'm almost at the midpoint of the book, so I, I'm assuming that they're going to show up eventually. So yeah. thoroughly enjoying that. And I've also been rereading some Georgette Hayes because I'm going through a stupid insomnia period. And sometimes when you just can't sleep, you just need to reread a Georgette Hayes or two. That's entirely nice. fair. I, meanwhile, have not read anything. I had a birthday, okay? And like, yeah, you I did. did have a birthday. Yeah. And I wrote more Untamed fanfic and had a minor crisis over the fact that my book is boring. And um, like, yeah, it's fine. Everything's fine. I have not read anything. Here's the thing. This is the first time in 56 episodes that you've admitted to not reading something. I think you're allowed. I think you're fucking allowed at this point. And honestly, our darling listeners are probably sitting there going, oh, thank God, my TBR pile doesn't have to die this week. Freya puts more on people's TBR lists than I do because That's I'm true. normally reading a fuck ton of fanfic or nonfic in like pieces. And so I don't mention it because I haven't finished anything. That's true. And I usually have read at least three more books than I actually mention. Yes. <laughs> because yeah. Freya is yeah. Spider's Georg. Yeah, I, I, she I, is. I read a she lot. is. But I have also been reading. We have. I think we have also been reading some Untamed fanfic. Let's be honest. Yeah, I've read a bunch of Scum Villain and Untamed, and I also got started on Heaven Official's Blessing. I got started on Heaven Official's Blessing too. <laughs> so yes, darling listeners, uh, there is a pile of, of of manure somewhere with your serpents firmly planted in it as usual. Yeah, I feel like we're all being a little bit unreliable narrators here because we're all just reading Untamed fanfic and like that's it except i'm the one who's actually going to admit to it because i 
have a fic wreck for you, dear <sighs> dear listeners. Uh, my untamed fanfic of the week is The Simplest Way Forward by Harriet Vane, which is the best kid fic that I've ever read. It's a modern AU with baby Ion, and it's soft and cute and has soft, cute dads, and a... A fake marriage for a green card. See, I so love read the that. fake marriage. I, I am sitting here going blasphemy, Alex. Why? Blasphemy. Why? It's not complete. You wrecked an unfinished fic. Well, she's okay. She it's has like the, the cardinal whole... sin. No, no, no. But she has the whole thing written, and she uh-huh. has posted four chapters in the last like two weeks. So. If it were any other fic, if she had not already said, like, hey, this is this is finished, this is done, like, if she hadn't said that, I wouldn't be, be recommending it. She mm-hmm. has, like, three chapters to go, and they're already written. She just has to get them beta read, which I volunteered to do, and of she course. has not taken it. Taken me up on <laughs> Look, it. I, I will second this wreck. This is a very good fic. It is, it is a good exceedingly kid fic. fic. It is kid fic to a point that is... Yes almost turned me off it but then the arranged marriage of convenience for a green card aspect is just so good <laughs> and it's it's wonderfully written i was just like eh, kid fic but yeah. it's great and and well here's the thing i usually do not care much for kid fic especially with very small children but this author has clearly met a toddler before <laughs> and has spent significant amounts of time with toddlers so that she knows how they talk and what their like appropriate developmental landmarks are and so i'm very impressed with her anyway that's my go read that fic there you go there's your untamed fic dear listeners um do we have any news news News. yes i have some news uh i have recently sold a short story which i am excited about did you tell us this i don't think you told us no i have been exceedingly like a wall from the world because i've been very busy and very stressed but I sold a short story. It was my cannibal mermaid story. Yes! Oh, that yes, one! I submitted it to an anthology that the Canberra Speculative Fiction Guild is doing called... It's called Unnatural Order. And it's about monsters. Very cool. Congratulations! That's awesome. Thank you. So I'll obviously be posting on Twitter once I know more about the availability of that. It was originally Kickstarter. I'm not sure if they're going to make it just available to Kickstarter backers to begin with, but I know it will be available in ebook form at least, generally. Nice. Yeah. There's also another piece of news. Uh, by the way, this is Alex from the future talking. Uh, we forgot to include this piece of news, so I'm having to record this after the fact, which is why my voice sounds a little bit weird. This is very strange. I've never done this before. Anyway, our second piece of news is that the nominations for the Hugo Awards close, I think, two or three days after this episode goes live. Uh, we are eligible for the Best Fan Cast category. We would love your nomination and support. So be sure to finish up your ballots. So, let us move on and talk about some tentpoles. Freya, I think you have our first tentpole, don't you? I do, and I feel like we don't really need to define terms and things here because we're going to be talking about the terms as we go, which is very meta of us. Yep. So, our first tentpole (laughs) is a fanfic called Steve Rogers at 100, Celebrating Captain America on Film, (laughs) by, here's a list, 11 Inches, Fabricant, Hello Taylor, M. Lee, Nina, and tiger milk. Yes. I was looking forward to hearing Freya pronounce that one. This is one of my favorite fanfics ever. It is hilarious and it is a masterpiece. (laughs) Its premise is that within the MCU, 
Steve Rogers, after he died, became the subject of many, many Hollywood <laughs> retellings of his life. And in mm -hmm. approximately, I guess, the early Avengers films era, when Steve and Bucky are both hanging around at Avengers Towers in that nebulous fanfiction time, <laughs> there is a film festival which shows all of these films. And the great thing about this pick is that it takes you through all of them via uh, reviews and movie blogs and historical documents about the making of the films and it gives you <laughs> lots of IMDB links to the actors who would have played the people at various times yep. and all the movie yep. posters. The movie uh, posters yep. are a work of genius. Uh. And then it just scatters it through with a little bit of commentary of what Bucky and, and Steve and Natasha and various other people think yep. of these movies yep. as they yeah. watch them to find out how their lives have been represented. Honestly, I think that this is one of those really stellar examples of what fanfic can do uh, when it because you have access to all of these different forms of things, mm -hmm. right? Like you have the movie posters, you have these these uh, found texts, kind of. It's a collection, and you have, as Freya said, the links to the IMDb page. And there's very few mediums in which this would work as well and as effectively as it does. Uh, and it's just a really amazing example of, of the form. Yeah. And it's a way to actually do commentary about the comic book character, Captain America, uh -huh. because mm -hmm. a lot of what it's saying about the ways in which this character has been reinterpreted since his inception and the ways in which different portrayals of him uh, will reflect what was happening in terms of the narrative and the cultural zeitgeist and how people think about America and patriotism yeah. at that time. A lot of that stuff is still very valid as commentary, even though it's commentary right. within a fic. Well, it made mm -hmm. me think mm -hmm. a little bit of um, seeing movie posters and trailers for 1917 right now. Oh, yeah. Yet another, like, oh, my brother is in an army somewhere on the Western Front and I must go through the war and save him. I'm like, have we not done enough of these? Oh, yeah. And it's on one level a very, very clever look at the ways in which war movies as a genre yep. have changed mm -hmm. even though it also includes the the, the french oh film God. with the, the gay french sex scenes <laughs> oh my God. which could not be released anywhere and that's the one that they decide starred chris evans and sebastian oh. stan these relatively unknown american oh. actors who went and did a french film with gay sex in it but could never be aired in america Oh gosh. Which also reminded it's... me of the Eddie Izzard bit about the difference between French and English and American films. Oh yes? Uh remind me of this. Oh gosh, I don't know if I can do it justice. But it was like man with a room with a door to hell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the very quiet French is like, oh monsieur. And then the, the American one is just like yelling and gunshots and it's like <laughs> Well, one of the American films involves them shooting down robotic T Rexes. And another one involves dropping a grenade down a Nazi's trousers, but like in Vietnam. Oh, like it's every... deeply unclear. The thing is that I would now really, really like to watch every single one of these films. They're very bad <laughs> films. Well, they all sound terrible, but in a uniquely wonderful way. Would you watch the uh, porn remake? Oh gosh, I have to tell you a college story now. Because there's also the porn remake. Tell I us the college story. Co so one time my computing society buddies show up at a place and they're like, we're going to study. And I'm like, are we going to study Dasha? Because the Russian one had brought the computer. We were 
quote-unquote studying from. And it turns out, no, Dasha had in fact brought two and a half bottles of vodka and a computer with the only thing on it was the porn parody version of Pirates of the Caribbean. So oh, Lord. In, this in, in this story, Dasha is playing the film, the role of Natasha Tony. and Tony Stark. Yep, 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 yep. So, so <laughs> yes. Um, so the seven of us, instead of studying for our databases final, got tipsy and watched a very bad porn remake of the Pirates of the Caribbean. That's not the really high quality one with the CGI, is it? Yep. Oh, it is. Yep. Cool. <laughs> it had like skeletons. I'm glad. I'm glad that we all know exactly which porn we're talking about here. <laughs> it wasn't really like there wasn't even that much porn in it. I'm just like, no, there wasn't that much. Like I haven't actually seen it. I've seen like clips of it, but anyway, not strangely the porn clips. I of it. have seen it. So there's that. Uh, anyway, amazing. Back, back to talking about the the temple. <laughs> Well, hold on. I just want to say, speaking of meta narratives, I'm so glad that we continually get these like fun stories from Macy's youth. I feel like it's been a long time since we had a new one. That's true. You had dissolute youths as well, the both of you. Yeah, but every time we get a new Macy story, it just adds another little square to the beautiful, colorful quilt that is the backstory of Macy. Right, because it's always like so surprising and fun. You have to understand that I am an amalgam of human beings, right? We have established this very thoroughly. This is what happens with having quite this. That's fine. Quite the strongest Slytherin secondary, okay? I just am multitudes. You are multitudes, and I love all of your multitudes. God. Let's talk about the Steve (laughs) Bucky Speaking of French movie. That um that are multitudes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So I need to say that one of my favorite things about this fic is that it very, very clearly shows how smart and educated quite a few of the authors are when it comes to yes. film history and so yes two yes, of the yes. writers uh, morgan lee davies and hello taylor who is gavia baker whitelaw have a very good podcast called over invested it's a pop culture commentary podcast which mostly focuses on movies and tv shows i listened to mm. it for ages and ages i think it's fantastic it is also eligible for a hugo for fancast ah, as are we so like us I will be putting it on my nomination ballot. But because I've listened to this for a very long time and I know a lot about the fact that Gav is a pop culture critic and Morgan has a lot of knowledge about film history and filmmakers, like she's a huge Mm -hmm. film buff, I can hear their voices in the parts (laughs) that they've written, especially because they also appear in the fic as themselves yeah. so there is as an the- academic <laughs> there is an academic article written by morgan lee davies there is a blog post written by gavia baker whitelaw as hello taylor and uh, both of them are absolutely spot on to the way that they talk in the podcast which just added mm-hmm. a whole new level of meta <laughs> to, to the reading so experience good. for this fic i didn't i didn't know that um they had written it and so like I hit the bit with Gavio where it's like a review by Gavio Baker Whitelaw and I'm like oh cool I know that name that's a cool reference and then I was like wait a second (laughs) wait a second here (laughs) so yes very self-referential and good um I also reading this fic started having some really kind of galaxy brain thoughts about how academic writing has some of the same kind of conversational mechanisms between the author and the audience that fanfiction does because both of them rely on kind of a shared knowledge of the subject, right? Mm. I'm thinking about that. You're making me think about asserting one's expertise. Yeah. 
asserting that one is sufficiently qualified to have a say about something. And mm -hmm. as an academic, you are doing that all the time. But as a fanfic author, you're doing it in a very subversive way. You're saying, fuck you, I do know what I'm talking about. And fuck you, I do have the right to reshape this form, this story in my image, in my preference. Yep. And you can't stop me. I am good enough. Yes. Yeah. I possibly know more about what I'm talking about than the actual author of canon does. This is like where we take canon away from the author and say, No, bad author, sit in a no, corner. Think about you, what you did. <laughs> where, where you squirt the author with the squirt bottle <laughs> and say, get off the counter. <laughs> any good quality academic writing in any area does exactly as fan fiction does, exactly as you said, Alex, rely on uh, a shared background. Mm -hmm. You aren't yeah. going to reinvent the wheel. You aren't going to redefine every single term. You have to sort of make a bit of a head tilt towards defining your terms in the introduction but then you can immediately right. move straight onwards and assume that everyone has read the seminal studies in this area and everyone knows mm -hmm. what these terms mean and that's yes, exactly what yes. fan fiction is, is saying everyone knows what the terms mean right okay now we're going to go play with them in a new way right and so it's therefore doubly hilarious to have a piece of academic writing being fanfic that it, uh, it sort yeah, of bends your brain in a really fun way. It is the exact same stuff that we got with the arguing historians in Written by the Victors. Mm. Yes, yes, very much. Yes. Still fucking adore. And yeah. this and this fic in particular, because it is obviously a very loving homage to transformative works. I mean, all of right. the movies that it's talking about are transformative works of history. Is also giving a quite a lot of lovely little in jokes to fandom. Like there is uh, a section yeah. where they talk about Ron Livingston being cast in one of the movies to pay Bucky and they have a little aside showing him in conversation with the director and with Matt Damon who is playing Steve and it's something about how he you know looks at him with this sort of like mixture of anger and frustration and yearning that he perfected in Band of Brothers yeah because Band of oh. Brothers was obviously quite a big slash fandom and Ron Livingston's yeah, performance in that role was quite <laughs> well known for the uh, gay yearning <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but yes, there was also a point here about this feeling a little bit like RPF because the way that Steve and Bucky interact with these movies kind oh, of yes. mimics how we like interact with RPF fandoms, right? Because yes. it's fiction about them, which is super weird. Oh yeah, and yep. like the whole point thing of them reacting to it is why you don't show the RPF yes! to the people. And and uh -huh. like I, I love that the the fic begins with Tony Stark's firewall having been set up to block all mention of these films from steve to protect him and then once the film festival is announced they're like okay we kind of have to let him know because otherwise <laughs> this could uh, blow up in our face but i mean right. at the same time the fic itself kind of is rpf it has short appearances from people like matt damon and ron yep. livingston <sighs> so yeah it's kind of what's the the snake that eats its own tail Ruberos. yeah of of RPF ness. Did I just yes. answer a question about a word rather than ask one? You did. Yeah. <gasps> but you know how to pronounce words. And I was like, here's this word which if I just say it, I'm gonna like embarrass myself on air. So <laughs> I'll do that for you, don't worry. <laughs> Thank you, Macy, for once. I was again, drinking from my from tea myself. and was not able to like leap in obnoxiously as I usually do when people ask about <laughs> words. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. Talking about ways that film can work with meta-narrative. Yes. Our second tentpole. Let's talk about lesbians. Oh, yes. I watched this movie and was going, <laughs> this is such a Macy movie the whole time. I'm so glad that Macy has this movie. <laughs> I'm not 
not sure if I agree with that because there were very few plants. That's true. And All right. No one had like there was no magic. No, but there were murderous lesbians. And really, if Macy I needs one them. thing, it's murderous lesbians. That's kind of fair. Anyway, we are discussing the I I I I can't the seminal movie. <laughs> oh lord. Uh, <laughs> Listen, I don't know what else to put there, A, that would be more appropriate as previously discussed on this podcast. <laughs> sure, but I was trying oh, to make trying a, to make a pussy joke. Otherwise, yeah, I've, there are, it's much harder, A, to make um, non-penis and dick related yeah. jokes. I feel we could yeah. probably start riffing on bells, given what happens in this movie. That's fair. Anyway, darling listeners, hello, welcome. We are talking about... The movie The Handmaiden, which is a Korean movie based on, I believe, was it a British book? Freya knows this better than yes. I do. Yes, this um, was based on the book by Sarah Waters. The Fingersmith? Fingersmith, yes. yes. Which is set in Victorian England and also has lesbians and is not set in Korea, but this adaptation yes. is, I think, superior to the book. It's a very, very good adaptation and in its own right, it is a very good work. Um, I will say, listeners, um, we are going to spoil it quite thoroughly. There is really no other way to discuss the stuff we wish to discuss mm -hmm. about this movie. Mm -hmm. um, if you wanted to watch it, I do recommend doing so unspoiled, modulo trigger warnings. It's quite violent and lots of nakedness. So maybe pause and go do that yeah. and then come back. Yes. Because yelling is now... Do it in a place where you are not in public because, yes, quite a lot of nakedness, quite a lot of you know, explicit sex. Explicit, beautifully shot, very aesthetic, but very explicit sex. I watched this for the second time with my mother. <laughs> and, we, and we just sat there in quiet British agreement not to acknowledge one another during the sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love Freya and Freya's mother stories too. <laughs> Me too. Those, are, those are good stories. And it yeah. also oh. does have quite an upsetting torture scene. Uh, fairly yes. late in yeah. the movie, which I had to completely skim past. Yeah. That is fair. Seriously, if um, you if you are a person who requires trigger warnings for everything, I would look up trigger warnings for this movie. Um, yes. But the lesbians do not get tortured, neither do they die. They are triumphant. They are I triumphant. kind of suggest we actually say anything about this movie. We could do that. <laughs> so, we were discussing what we wanted to have as our third tentpole for the meta-narratives episode for a while. It took us a little bit to decide. And I think I brought up The Handmaiden because The Handmaiden structurally does something pretty interesting. It gives you an entire movie in an hour um, about the this titular handmaiden who is a petty thief and con artist who gets dragged into this scheme where she pretends to be the handmaiden of this noble sheltered daughter of a rich count in order to help a male con man marry this daughter, run away with her, imprison the daughter in a madhouse and take all of her money. It turns out that this is not actually what is happening when at the 57 minute mark, the daughter of the count and the con man lock the handmaiden in the madhouse and swan away. Mm -hmm. And then we start the movie again. <laughs> it really is very brilliant. It's very, very good. Um, and there's a lot of stuff in here about the illusions that we have of one another yep. and the ways that 
presenting ourselves can trick one another and the ways that Suki who is the main character the handmaiden um kind of fills in a lot of blanks about her mistress mm -hmm. even if the mistress isn't explicitly lying to her about them and that is this meta narrative of she has a story about this sheltered young maid. It's it's about like the assumptions that we make about people and how sometimes we use archetypes to um and stereotypes about people and that how those can like really bite you in the ass because the Suki has this archetype in her head about what her mistress must be like and so she right. doesn't bother looking any deeper than that. Mm. Right. And as a film, it also plays on our idea of what makes a story so that we f mm -hmm. we are not expecting a twist because the first half of the film is telling us a story that falls into familiar beats. Mm -hmm. thinking, okay, yep. this, is a con, this is a con artist film and you know, there's some great interpersonal character tension, but even if that had been the whole story, it would still be a satisfying story. So then when it turns around at the halfway mark and says, actually, this is a different type of story, we're still on the, oh, this is a con artist story, but it's being told from the other point of view, the other person is the one who was in on the secret the whole time. And then when the movie twists again, you get tricked again because you're not expecting a second twist because you had made the same assumption that you had made at the beginning of the film that, mm -hmm, oh, right. okay, I know what type of story this is. So when it actually turns out to be a romance and about two amazing women getting the better of a terrible man, you're, you're At least two terrible men. Two terrible men. You're still surprised because you are presented with this is the type of story this is and you believed it twice. Alex, how was this for you? Because this was the first time you watched it, right? It was the first time I watched it and I was almost completely unspoiled. I knew that there was like some kind of... I knew that there was a twist and I knew yeah. that it involved... Oh yeah, like for the first bit, like you're getting the story from one person's perspective, and then for the second bit, you're getting it from the second person's perspective. But that's about all that I knew of it. Mm -hmm. So I was very surprised at the uh, first twist when um, the handmaiden gets locked in the madhouse. I was like, oh, was not expecting that. Interesting. Uh, I was not as surprised at the second twist because at that point I was looking for the clues and mm. keeping my eyes open and being a little bit more smart and not and and questioning what the movie was telling me so to spell it out for our listeners the um the first time through when you're in the handmaiden's point of view um the innocent young maiden asks for help learning how to please her husband and those two end up fucking yeah um and still like kind of flirting with each other and sort of maybe being in love but then when she gets shut in the madhouse you assume that this was part of the trick right like, and you go into the kind of the cold dead-eyed mistress of the house mm -hmm. and you find out that she has been being abused by her uncle for her whole life and groomed to be his wife eventually and forced to read these hugely explicit classical texts to many of his guests while performing mock sex acts for them in his basement and she kind of hates all men and basically wants to die yeah and you're like oh okay and so you get about halfway through her section like okay so she is going to find a way to be free on her own terms for herself and then you realize no actually she's falling in love with the handmaiden she's not cold and dead inside she's not 
anything like that. She's gay yeah. and has never liked a man. It's true. Yeah. that Because I think the mistress is the one person who you see three personas of. You see her, mm-hmm. you see one person's perception of her, and then you change your own perception, and then you change your perception again. Whereas Sukhi yes. more or less is the same person all the way through because you've yes. seen the very, very truth of her from the very beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with the con artist. And I think that that's super fascinating because you don't expect the thief to be the honest one. I kept expecting it to go to a third point of view. Mm-hmm. I think that was what was surprising to me was that it's only there to... Except... The only other person's point of view that it could have gone to is one of the horrible men, and neither of them deserved a chance to tell their side of the story anyway. It did go to a third point of view in a way. It went to the couple. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's true. That's true, both of them together. Yeah. Running away with one of them in a fake moustache. Very cute, actually. (laughs) On a very badly CGI'd steamer. Yeah, yeah. Ah, it was lovely. Well, one of the great things about this film structure is that it really rewards rewatching. So I've now seen this film mm-hmm. three times. And only when you go back and watch it again do you actually realize what is being done in terms of framing from a visual perspective. Like the mm-hmm. ways in which it will show you a scene and you think you know what's going on, but there will be some very, very deliberate omissions. And the first time mm-hmm. through you don't realize that they're omissions, but then once the movie switches and goes back to the beginning of the timeline you realize just how blatant those emissions were and then Mm -hmm. you're right alex i think your eyes are a little bit more open and then you start to notice what else are you not being shown what else is not being explained to you and it's also a story about the ways in which people look at and don't look at women yes yes absolutely there's a bunch of stuff with manipulating the female servants as well right Mm mm-hmm yeah, and it absolutely relies on them being underestimated mm-hmm. by the two men. Suki especially, because Suki is supposed to be just sort of like dumb and simple and, oh yeah, she's a good pickpocket, but like she's not thinking for herself. Not like the uh, mistress of the house who I can't remember Hiroko? her name. Yes. Hiroko was it? I think Hiroko. Um, like she has an element of, of power and privilege just because she's so rich. And so like she has to be a person who is at least given the benefit of the doubt as to whether or not she's thinking for herself. Because if she says, no, I don't want to marry you, then that throws the con artist's whole plan out of, out of sync. So he has to, he has to say like, is she like, I have to convince her. I have to admit that maybe she has something else going on in her head than what I want. I think though that she also has a lot of the archetypes of the like, the doll in the cage. Yeah. Like, she's in prison. She only has so many choices. But okay, enough talking about the ways that different characters can argue about the same narrative. Let's talk about something totally different. <laughs> uh, let's talk about how different characters can argue about the same narrative. <laughs> what a wonderful change. Let's do that. Let's do that. So, uh, one of the most... Um, meta things possible is an author talking about how their own book talks about itself. Um, so we've got like layers of onion going on here. The third tentpole is my book, A Choir of Lies, uh, which is the sort of sequel to A Conspiracy of Truths, which came out in uh, 2018. Cons- uh, Choir of Lies came out in September of 2019 last year. Somehow 2019 was last year. Who knows how that happened? Linear time. Fake. What the fuck? Fake. Fake news. Fake news. Choir of Lies is about Ilfing, 
who is writing down a story as it happens to him, so kind of a journal. And throughout this book, there are footnotes from another character, and you don't find out until partway through the book who this other character is. And she is commenting on what Ilfing has written down. So you have one narrator telling the story as it happens, and the other narrator telling the story in retrospect, after it has happened, after she has sort of a, a view on the big picture. Mm -hmm. And this was partially because footnotes are great, and because they, uh, <laughs> they are, and partially because a few people did not understand that A Conspiracy of Truths was an unreliable narrator. And so I was like, okay, well, let me educate you about unreliable narrators by holding your hand and deliberately walking you through the fact that these are unreliable narrators by having them question each other explicitly uh, and call out the points where that's not how it happened or... Uh, I didn't say it that way, and things like that. Uh, it also has fantasy tulip mania uh, and floods and a fucky shadow god. That's everything you need to know about the book. Pretty much. That's true. That's true. Well, it's really gay. <laughs> it is gay also. Well, one of my yeah. favorite things about the book as a piece of meta-narrative is the fact that the secondary narrator, the footnote narrator, is not just interacting with a story that's being told. Mm. Uh, she is interacting with a physical object. Yes. She yes. is interacting with a bundle of paper with words written on it. And yep. so she is making commentary on what is written down, how is it written down, what language was chosen in order to write it down, which are the bits that She's... were crossed out, which are the bits that went missing. Yes. Why? Yes. She's burning pages. She's burning pages as she goes. She, writing her yeah, own chapters. She has a lot yep. of opinions about the fact that it was <laughs> written down <laughs> physically at all. Yes. yes, she does. Yes. <laughs> I'm so glad you like that part because that's one of my favorite parts about it too. I was like, what, what are all the things that you can do with the book as a physical object? And then I tried to do all of those things. Well, also, I think every time you hit a structural problem, you realized you could solve it through the virtue of this story being a physical book. Mm -hmm. yep. why, we don't need to have this chapter about dragons. That can just not be there. Why don't <laughs> want to describe this thing so that can be something that just doesn't appear. The chapters can go missing, and every time it was more fun and also solved the problem. Right, and you can just like reference the fact that this was here. One of my favorite pieces of trivia to tell people about is that the dragon chapter actually did exist and it actually was just Ilfing being like sad for like 20 pages and it I'm wasn't mad about this and it wasn't doing anything and so I took yeah. it out <laughs> well and you know what was really weird and frustrating from the way that I experienced the beginning of this book as it is now I was like oh and then this is like the long Alex we love you it's a much better book now think uh, it is that's why we do edits is to make it a bo but better book but I was reading it and I got to that bit and I kept going and I'm like, wow, Ilfing has been whining forever because in my head, the ghost of that chapter was still there. <laughs> well, that's fine because to the footnoter, that chapter was it there. It was too. That's yeah, how Mr. Yeah. Chant so, yeah. experienced it. Chant like, is... Mr. Chant, let me hold your hand. We will get through this together. <laughs> so, yes. yeah. so from our point of view, Macy and I... To make this you read the first draft. Better. We read oh, yes, the first draft. You read of this. you read like the zero draft. I had it like hot off the presses. I had not touched it. Other there than was to write a it. square brackets where the climactic scene on the dam went. Yeah, it, it was, was like, like 
we fixed the dam here. Like open bracket stuff happens here. Close bracket. <laughs> so that was I still in the book. I'm like yeah. Alex. So possibly the most meta version possible of this particular narrative uh. would be a copy of the Google document of the zero draft, in which yes. Macy and I highlighted all of the footnotes where Mistress Chant was yelling at him for whining and not not doing anything, and went, "We agree. We agree." <laughs> And there's a very commentary fi- on the commentary. There's a very fine line to walk between lampshading your character's whining <laughs> uh-huh. and making it so egregious that your first readers are like, okay, yes, this is a lovely lampshade, but the yeah. book can't be a lampshade. Right, right. But this is a book about coming out of a deep depression after something horrible has been done to you. Mm-hmm. And now you have to make a trip down to the low point of acknowledging that it was a thing that was done to you. And it's something that Ilfing is not fundamentally capable of doing on his own, which is a fascinating thing for a story's protagonist to have, because we're not meant to do that as authors. You're meant to present a set of problems that your character can do stuff at. And this book takes that and looks at it sideways and is like, you know what? No, I don't agree with that as a philosophy. <laughs> Let's have Orfeo and Mistress Chant not on the page, but like in the world and Stare and like all the other characters give the main character, Ilfing, enough of the pieces to pull him around to seeing that he was mistreated and then pull him out of it and see him through his manic phase because you can't do that on your own. Right. And he comes to a point like... It's not that Ilfing has no agency. It's that there is this very important journey that he is going on that is not the same as the plot of the book. Yes, because, I mean, the whole book is really about community and about what we do for each other. And sometimes coming out of depression or realizing, especially like realizing that you have been in an abusive relationship with someone that someone hurt you really bad. Sometimes you need other people on the outside of it to look at that and go, uh, that's not right for right. you to be able to realize, oh shit, that wasn't right. And I think this is what the meta narrative also gives us is sort of that for the whole book. Yeah. And because first person is so immersive, I think the only way you get through the first half of the book without somehow thinking that the depression is who Ilfing is, is right. you have this external commentary on it. Even though yes. the external commentary is not particularly sympathetic and it's calling him a whiner, right. it is giving you an idea that this is not normal. And you can't, you can never subsume yourself totally in Ilfing's own point right. of view, which would be quite demoralizing if you did, because you oh, keep yeah. getting jabbed and pulled out of it by Mistress Chant. Right. And yeah, so the experience of reading it is not like reading a book in some ways. You can't treat it as a book because you have this voice on your shoulder the whole time and it becomes more and more like a book towards the later half where they start kind of working in concert Mm -hmm. and like agreeing with each other and and being more in conversation one of my favorite parts was when Ilfing turns around and starts addressing Mistress Chant the footnoter directly after he's decided that oh this is what I'm going to do with this with this stack of pages that I've been writing all this time I'm going to give it to her to you (laughs) Uh, and she freaks out about that because obviously that's weird Um, it's like like someone that you've been poking fun at this whole time turning around and saying I see you but I also like the parts before that before he knows he's going to give her the pages where he is describing conversations that they have 
Yep. <laughs> and she is incensed by the ways in which she is described <laughs> and the motives that he attributes to her and the ways in which she was totally misunderstood. Which is great because she is obviously not right either. No, yes. absolutely. Because she has so many fucking opinions. She has so many opinions. And I think it's easier to see the ways in which she's not right because you don't quite like her, right? right. Because like... Ilfing is cute and sad and soft and you feel sort or at least like the ideal reader feels sort of sympathetic to him and she is being very very unsympathetic and even if you don't really sympathize with him a decent person goes like wow maybe you shouldn't be so mean to this person like I don't really like him either but do we have to be so mean and cruel to him but you could take a step back and say she knows he's never going to see these footnotes yeah. she is she is in conversation with her own feelings in yes, a way that yes. she knows will never actually harm him. Yep. <sighs> Therapy people go to it. Did you like the final draft? Yes. Good. We did. It was good fun. But we are running sort of low on time. Yeah. So let's talk about unreliable narration and conflicting points of view. Yeah. Because I think that's what we've been seeing that's sort of cool here, right? Yes. And I think, so Choir of Lies uses unreliable narration and conflicting point of views from to show that everybody has opinion so it's saying that what happened is very very subjective and mm -hmm. the handmaiden film uses different points of view to show that there's not necessarily an unreliable character even though all of them are lying to one to one extent or another but mm -hmm. the unreliability is present in the film editing the yes. storyboard is the fucking liar like you are That's very true. deliberately being manipulated by the piece of art in front of you not mm -hmm. by any of the mm -hmm. individual characters who are too busy manipulating one another <laughs> and so I think you can break down an unreliability of narration into is it to do with what the piece of art is doing? Is it to do with just everything, you know, reality being subjective? Is it to do with unreliable memory, which is what the whole Rashomon effect is about? And I think we talked about this when we did our unreliable narrators episode and talked about the leverage episode, the Rashomon job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you have unreliability through deliberate mistruth, which I think is a little bit rarer. The only example that I could think of in books is a book called An Instance of the Finger Post, which is a historical murder mystery by Ian Pears, and it's comprised of four parts, and each one is from a different person who is writing down their version of what happened or adding to what has mm -hmm. come before, and every time you get a new section, you realize that something in the previous section was an outright lie. Like, they actually were not even, it wasn't even subjective, it wasn't even uh, unreliably remembered, it was actually a mistruth that was being told to mislead you. Hmm. Well, it's making me think of the liar that we covered for our unreliable narration, narration episode mm. all the way back. That was like episode three or something, wasn't oh, it? Oh gosh. It's a good episode. It was a good um, episode. But I think meta-narratives, no, this is what I'm thinking of. Um, it's the husband and wives show. The one oh. where they Macy. were rewinding and replaying. The we haven't Macy, talked about this show it... for a while. I think we may need to actually You can't call it. it the husbands and wives show, Macy, because that is an in-joke that between you and me that literally none of our listeners will get unless they've been with us for like two called. fucking years. It's called, it's called person, person of Interest. interest. Okay. <laughs> Macy. I'm not doing this shit on purpose, okay? Mm -hmm. There is an episode in the science fiction AI show called Person of interest in which half of the episode gets played through and then all of your characters die yeah 
Yep. And then there is a screeching halt of a noise and a bunch of like weird pixels. And then like the AI reboots the scenario and takes it from the top. I loved that episode. And that's a great meta-narrative episode. That was it a is. great fucking episode. Especially because it takes the opportunity to comment on the characters themselves. Because uh-huh. the, AI, yes. the AI is just producing constructs based on what it knows of these characters. And so it, yes. instead of them actually saying a funny quip, they'll say, funny quip. <laughs> Self-deprecating <laughs> remark. Overt flirting. Oh god! Especially like not it so much in the first scenario because that one's fairly detailed, but the right. the repetitions get faster and faster oh, as yes. you go, and so the it's computer great. keeps like simplifying and simplifying and simplifying. So instead of coming up with a funny quip, it just says funny quip. Yeah. Yep. But here's a question because I'm thinking about this. What are we meaning when we say meta narrative? This is late in the episode, but I'm asking anyway. So meta narrative. Let's go ahead and just Google the actual defini- oh, definition. No. Come on, <laughs> okay. Well, my my off the cuff definition is a narrative that fucks with the idea of narrative itself. Ooh, that's I a like good that one. Definition. That's a good one. It's like it's self-referential and commenting on itself, and it has an element of self-awareness too. I think. Yeah, I, think I so. would agree. I think that it has to have more than one perspective is the word i will use because i don't mean point of view okay right um, frame like you could just as easily if you'd given me a copy of choir of lies in which ilfing from 20 years later is writing the snarky footnotes that would still be a meta narrative even yep. though it's the same point of view because he has like, a different perspective yeah he's standing in a different place and like the film has different perspectives because mm-hmm. it's different films different mood boards even though nobody involved in that really knows they're telling their story right now you may tell us what Google says. Oh, what does Google say? I didn't actually bring it up because Macy was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I care about your opinion, uh, Alexandra. Well, I was going to read the thing and then give my opinion. So okay. I was going to comment on the definition after. Okay. <laughs> so okay. Google says that meta narrative is, noun, a narrative account that experiments with or explores the idea of storytelling, often by drawing attention to its own artificiality. Hey, look, we nailed well it. Done, Good job. Two, an overarching account or interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or structure for people's beliefs and gives meaning to their experiences. So well done, Macy, as well. It it talks about the perspective thing. Good job. I think that between the three of us, we kind of nailed that. clean. Yeah. Wow. We kicked ass on that. Well done. Yeah. It's almost like we're good at media analysis. We might actually know what we're talking about sometimes. <laughs> Incredible. Fake. <laughs> Wild if true. <laughs> Huge if true. Wild if true. We're just a bunch of nerds in snake t-shirts. Right. We should get some snake t-shirts. Hey, hey, look. Oh, hey, you actually have a snake t-shirt on. It's a snake Christmas sweater. Oh, that's, that's nice. Wonderful. My Slytherin t-shirt is pajamas, so I am not currently wearing it. <laughs> I have no snake t-shirt. But I, I want to talk about something about our fanfic tentpole for a second. Okay. And the cool things it does by picking up the story of Steve and Bucky and then doing it in a bunch of different movies. Mm. And I want to yell about like how we can't do that kind of adaption of fictional characters because of fucking copyright law. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fucking bullshit. Can we shout about Disney princess remakes? We because sure can. Arg. <laughs> <laughs> Pause no, for like, shouting. The, the entire concept of being able to own a story, like, okay, 
two of two thoughts. Hello, I am a professional fantasy author mm-hmm. yelling about people owning stories, and obviously, I do want to be paid and yes. live a life. Yes. But in this capitalist hellscape we live in, um, properties like Disney, who own things like Snow White, and then cynically push out the bounds of who else can play in their ball pit. Yes. Even when they didn't invent the fucking ball pit, make me really angry. Yes. Um, yes. Because look at what we could be having. Right. Like, I'm 1000% with you. Like, as a professional author, I would love to be paid, but also, like, as a folklorist and a mythology Mm -hmm. person, like, I have big, big feelings about who, who owns stories and how we don't have many opportunities for stories to be a communal shared thing, except for fan fiction. Well, and I keep coming back to Sherlock Holmes. Um, because something about those tropes kind of latched into people's minds and they keep getting remade. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are other examples. I am positive there are many examples in Chinese fiction. Mm. Um, but there are these public domain stories that you see adapted until there is a meta narrative around those characters right. and that story just because they are available and interesting. Yeah, and it'll get to the point where any new adaptation is in conversation with the meta-narrative of those characters yeah so like when you're making a new sherlock holmes adaptation you're kind of giving your opinion on all of the other adaptations and you're choose you're sort of quilting something out of bits and scraps from all of them so like oh yes i really liked how the bbc sherlock did this and i really like how the um what's it's the one that was in the 80s elementary oh Gosh. Or something. I really like how that one did that. And I'm completely rejecting this interpretation of the Sherlock character entirely. <laughs> new new uh, Serpent Cast merch. Authors against ball pit appropriation. Hey. <laughs> hey. Completely difficult to understand t-shirt for anybody not there in we the go. know. There we go. It's fine. Uh, well, so is Buff in the emotional labor wave. You don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> That's true. But somebody put a cool note here about long-term stuff. Oh, yes, that was me. So I have also, like, on the note of copyright law, um, and I think this ties in with what Freya wants to say in a minute about comic books, like, when you have a really long-term media property, like Star Trek, which has been being remade and added to since, what, the 60s? Uh, and Star Wars, which not only has these nine movies, but also dozens and dozens of novels forming the extended universe. You have almost a century of comic books from Marvel and DC that are all building and building and building on these kind of stratified layers of everything else that has come before it. But I don't actually know whether I consider Star Trek Deep Space Nine to be a meta-narrative on Voyager. Okay. Like... There's a difference to me in between shared universe and commentary. Um, so, for example, a great example episode of a meta-narrative episode is the one with the Tribbles, where they revisit the episode The Trouble with Tribbles from classic Star Trek, and they cut in bits of Captain Kirk dealing with Tribbles together with Worf with his incorrect Klingon makeup and have to, like, explain why Klingon face shape change. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Actually, you know, so Galaxy Quest is Star Trek. Oh, Galaxy Quest. Yes. That yes. is a meta narrative on Parody the show. Parody and of Star satire Trek. is kind of inherently meta narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I think, like, it's definitely a subset of that. Yes. I did want to have a talk about comics, but I was thinking less about superhero comics in 
particular and more mm. about what you can do with different mediums when it comes to a meta narrative. So we've already talked a little bit about the way in which The Handmaiden as a visual movie could do different right. things with narrative and framing and what you saw and what you didn't see. And I wanted to shout out a couple of my favorite recent comic series that use the actual format of being a physical comic book in an interesting way. Mm. So uh, Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey's run in Young Avengers is one of the most creative ones I've seen in terms of the use of the physical space of the page mm-hmm. and mm. the idea of frames. And so you have characters who are stuck in a dimension by some monster and all of the frames that they are in on the page are their own little cells in this dimension. And so you have people opening nice. the top of their own frame box and helping <laughs> someone else out and walking across the page to go to somebody else's little cell. And it's Perfection. using comic book framing to represent something that might otherwise have been quite abstract. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so there's a lot of very uh, clever things done with use of that and also using comic book framing to represent social media. Mm. Uh, and I also think that uh, Matt Fraction and David Asia's run of Hawkeye did some really good stuff with the use of comic book framing. There's a whole section where when Hawkeye loses his hearing, um, there's a lot of use of actually the the hand-drawn symbols for an ASL word or, an, uh-huh. or a letter mm-hmm. in order to show that he's not hearing anything. And even though reading a comic book is a silent experience, suddenly it brings home to you that this person is not hearing anything mm-hmm. rather than showing words in bubbles. Yeah. And there's an entire story that is told from the point of view of his dog, which again doesn't use words at all, but just shows the thought bubbles having symbols of <laughs> the concepts that the dog is thinking about at that time. That reading your points about this made me think of the original Watchmen comic, uh, the mm. one in the 80s, um, because Throughout that comic, the main character, Rorschach, is reading a horror comic about cannibal sailors. Yes. Sailors who are stranded and end up having to eat one another to survive. And in the recent TV show, there is a frame superhero TV show um, about another superhero who ends up being part of the main narrative. And it's just delightfully meta. Uh, right? Because it's saying, look at how cheesy and ultra-violent this show is that your kids are watching mm-hmm. while yeah. you yourself are sitting on the couch watching this ultra-violent comic book TV show. Yeah. And I think that that really fits. I haven't seen the, t- the TV series, but Watchmen itself was obviously a meta-narrative about superhero comics. Yeah, I found the Watchmen TV show to be one of the more interesting and cool TV shows I've watched recently, it does a lot of things, and I enjoyed it. Mm. Nice. Another thing I wanted to mention before we move on from formats is how I Mm. think increasingly we're going to see the use of social media to support meta-narrative. I was thinking particularly of Check, Please, the Mm. hockey ice romance comic. You mean our actual social media? Yes, actual social media. So this isn't just a comic book that shows people's text messages on the page, but a comic book that has a Twitter account that is the main character's <laughs> Twitter account that unfortunately because of timing couldn't quite you know show the tweets happening in real time with the comic being released. Right. But this person's Twitter account has pictures and tweets of things that are happening, how he would be reacting at various times during the comic. And I think that's such a lovely way of doing meta-narrative and adding layers. Have you guys seen the ongoing 
fanfic slash performance art. Yes. That is oh, gosh. the, yes. do you know which one I'm talking about? The Untamed, <laughs> the untamed one? one? Yes. Yeah. Which oh, is Lanwen G's Twitter account. Uh, if he were like some idol or something and uh, Wei Xian is his um, makeup artist. And, oh no, like, I, it's I'm used... thinking of a completely different one. Yeah. And so like the actual story is told on Twitter through tweets as in, like in real time basically <laughs> oh no i'm thinking of the one that's basically just like all the wechat pages oh no no this one this one's like the mm, no this is a story told in real time on twitter like it's performance art basically it's it's fascinating i haven't read all of it but i've been sort of watching it kind of happen in the periphery well that's been happening in fandom for a while like role yeah, yeah role, up, up, role play has been happening on tumblr accounts and twitter accounts yes uh, once yes, it yes. moved off the blogging platforms for a while that is a very interesting way of doing i guess it's it's a frame of a narrative rather than commenting on the narrative yeah but it's a way that but it is you know what it's making me think of it's making me think of um live action role play um oh yeah and to what degree is that actors putting on a performance versus you are participating and pretending to be a person you're sort of both at the same time like you're both right. kind of an actor and a participant or a, a, an audience member and a participant uh which is fascinating yeah and i think that a lot of the um live journal rpgs the like multi-fandom ones were a lot more about you were doing it for yourself and the audience was the other participants yeah yeah mm. we have like two more minutes do we want to talk about more about footnotes and terry pratchett terry pratchett is foundational to my adoration of the footnote Agreed. and the depth of humor that he manages to get into it i still it boggles me every time you always find new jokes and yes. i adore him Hello everybody, thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. If we haven't managed to extend your TBR quite far enough yet, I wanted to shout out two more things that you could check out. One of them is the Chorus of Dragons series by Jen Lyons, which features some really excellent use of footnotes to create frame and meta-narrative. The other is the film Stranger Than Fiction, which is an absolutely charming film, one of my absolute favourite Emma Thompson vehicles, about a man who discovers he's a fictional character and goes in search of his creator. For the next episode, two weeks hence on March 25th, wash your hands, hunt out your folk remedies, and marvel at our unfortunate timing, because we're talking plague narratives. One of our temples will be Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. Questions? Comments? breathless adulations as ever you can get in touch with us at serpentcast at gmail.com and we're at serpentcast on twitter and tumblr or you can check out the fan discord chat which is linked on the about the show page of the podcast website if you enjoy the podcast and would like to support us you can find our patreon at patreon.com serpentcast or please consider leaving us a rating and review on itunes so we can continue to reach new listeners and by the way this is a compliment, an effusive and on-theme compliment. <laughs>